My name is Nick Phillips. I'm a partner in the intellectual property team at Edwin Co. And a lot of our work involves advising on data, data privacy issues. Uh, typical work includes um, advice on data flows from the UK and the EEA, uh, assisting with contractual arrangements where data is being shared between parties, typically in the context of a tech or a media deal, um, or just assisting with data privacy compliance generally. Um, so we act for a number of businesses ranging from startups all the way through to listed companies on, on data privacy compliance. I think it would be fair to say that the last four or five years have seen quite a lot of change uh, to the data privacy landscape. Uh, in May 2018, we had the GDPR, which I think was the biggest change in the data privacy landscape for at least 20 years. And then in 2020, we had Brexit, um, which ultimately led to the UK adopting the GDPR, but created an awful lot of uncertainty around data transfers between the UK and the EEA. And then most recently, we have proposals from the UK to essentially amend the GDPR, which will inevitably lead the UK uh, to be moving sort of slowly away from the, from the GDPR, um, but more about those on another occasion. Uh, but today, I want to talk to you about data subject access requests, or DSARs. Now, DSARs are a right under which individuals can request copies of their personal data. Now, those requests can be made by the individuals to other individuals, to businesses, or to organisations, essentially anyone who is processing uh, someone's personal data. Uh, there has been a real uptick in the number of DSARs being made in, in the last three or four years, um, which, is, which, which on one level is slightly odd because the right to make a DSAR has always been around and, and certainly predates the GDPR. But I think the reason for it is, is that there was an awful lot of publicity around DSARs when the GDPR came into force. So suddenly, suddenly people become a lot more aware of the right. And also, in part, um, pre-GDPR, there was a £10 fee payable every time you made a DSAR, but post-GDPR, that fee has been abolished. So what I wanted to do um, was set out some top tips for dealing with DSARs, and also just to, just to go through some frequently asked questions that, that, we, that we often get from clients. Now, the first three of these really relate to the time before you get a DSAR, so they're really preparatory to, to a DSAR that you might receive. So the first one is have a robust data retention policy. Now one of the sort of key principles underpinning the GDPR is the principle of data minimization. So that, what, that, what that says essentially is that you should only be keeping the data that you actually need uh, for your purposes. So what you should be doing is regularly reviewing the data that you hold to ensure that you only have what you need. Obviously, when it comes to looking at a DSAR, the less data you have to sift through and the less data that you have to disclose, the, the better. 
Um, the, the second sort of pre-DSAR tip is training. Now, there is no particular form uh, or form of words that must be used when you're making a DSAR. So it's important that you and your staff are able to recognise when a DSAR has been made and also know what to do with it. Now, one, one thing I have noticed is that a lot, a lot of bigger businesses will quite often have a sort of DSAR form and they will try to make people use that form when they make their DSARs. I think that's a good idea. I mean, the more, the more DSARs you can get in a sort of standard form, the better. Um, but obviously you can't force people down, down that road. So you still have to be on the lookout for sort of DSARs in a non-standard form. So the third um, sort of preparatory DSAR step is to have a DSAR policy. Now what that would look like is a policy which sets out what you're going to do when you get a DSAR. And typically that would identify one or two people who are responsible for managing the process of dealing with that DSAR. It would also identify where the data that you need to access internally is kept and it would also identify uh, the key stakeholders that need to be consulted when you are, um, when you are answering the DSAR. So what do you do when you get a DSAR? Um, well, the first thing uh, is not to sit on it and to act straight away. Generally speaking, you'll have a period of a month to deal with the DSAR, so it's very important that you do start dealing with it without delay. Um, your, almost your first steps would include a simple acknowledgement uh, to the person making the DSAR that you've received it. You may also want to request identification from that person where there's any doubt about who they are. Uh, and in those circumstances, you can ask them for ID. And in some circumstances, where, the, where there's a lot of data or where the DSAR is particularly vague or unspecific, you may want to go back to them and ask for clarification about what they're asking for. And the advantages of asking for ID or asking for clarification, if, the, if it's appropriate to do so, are also that the, the, the clock will stop while those requests are being dealt with. We're often asked, uh, when can we say no to a DSAR? When can we refuse to uh, comply with it? Now the answer to that unfortunately is that the grounds on which you can refuse to comply with the DSAR are extremely narrow and very seldom uh, apply. Now what the GDPR says is that you can uh, refuse to comply with a, G with, a, sorry, with a DSAR where it is manifestly unfounded or excessive and the ICO certainly uh, interprets those words very narrowly indeed. Interestingly, the UK in its latest round of proposed reforms is talking about changing manifestly unfounded and excessive to vexatious and that may or may not increase the scope for people to refuse to comply with DSARs. What do you need to disclose? Well, the obligation on you is to disclose copies of the personal data rather than the, do the documents in which the personal, personal data is contained. But having said that, it's quite often easier uh, to disclose copies of emails, copies of correspondence, 
copies of memorandums, whatever else you have, rather than extracting the personal data from those documents and disclosing it separately. Um, but, but there may be occasions on which it suits you to essentially pull that personal data from those documents and disclose it perhaps in the form of a table or a schedule. Are there any exemptions to what you need to disclose? Yes, there are several. The ones that we come across most often in practice are firstly mixed personal data. So where the personal data you need to disclose to respond to the DSAR is mixed up with the personal data of a third party. Uh, you need to be careful about how you treat that. And essentially you should only be disclosing that third party personal data where you have the consent of the third party. Uh, the second, second exemption we see quite a lot of is legal professional privilege. So correspondence with lawyers, advice from lawyers. Generally speaking, that doesn't need to be disclosed. And there are several other exemptions. Quite a lot of them relate to the sort of employee-employer relationship. So there are exemptions around uh, references and exemptions for disclosing information relating to management forecasting or management planning. So to answer the DSAR, you're going to need to do a search of, the, of your records to identify any personal data about the individual that you hold. And what, so what are you looking for? Um, essentially what you're looking for is any information that you hold about that person from which that person can be identified. Now I think a, a very useful test to use here is to ask yourself, what do I learn about that individual? So let's say you, you run your search uh, against the individual's name and it pulls up a whole bunch of emails. And when you're reading through those emails, you're, you're, you're asking yourself the question, what did I learn about that individual? So if you learn anything about them, so that could include their salary, maybe their drawings, their expenses, uh, their financial situation, where they've been on holiday, what meetings they've been on, uh, anything about their family. Uh, so anything you learn about that individual from, from the documents you hold is likely to be disclosable. So the, the last thing to say about DSARS is to remember that it's not just about providing copies of the personal data. Under the GDPR, you also have an obligation to provide certain information about the personal data that, you, that you're processing. Now that information is essentially the same information as you've already disclosed in your privacy notice or your privacy policy, and it's information such as where did you get the data from, what you're going to use it for, what your legal basis for processing it is, and how long are you going to retain it for. So there's quite a lot to think about, uh, both pre and post receiving a, a DSAR. Now as a firm, we are quite often called in to help with DSARs. That may be running the whole process, particularly where there's a huge amount of data or where the data is particularly complicated and a number of different exemptions might apply, but also fairly commonly where there's a very fractious relationship between the parties and perhaps there's a real threat of litigation. So in those cases, the parties are really seeing the DSAR as uh, almost a precursor 
to litigation and they're wanting to bring lawyers in at that early stage to ensure that what's disclosed under the DSAR doesn't affect their interests in the litigation. In other examples, we are not asked to run the whole DSAR process, but we might be asked to advise on discrete issues, such as perhaps the application of an exempt of a particular exemption. Um, but either way, we're very much here to help.